What it do, what it do, baby. What it do, what it do. How's everybody doing today? Um, I believe we have a lot going on. I believe Wall Street is under assault by Reddit trolls. And I fucking love it. Yummy, yummy in my tummy all day long. I mean, this is, uh, I saw a great post. Somebody said, we originally had Occupy Wall Street. Now we have Infiltrate Wall Street. And that's kind of what's happening, man. So I'm going to break it down for you. Don't worry. Um, I don't know if I would describe it as complicated to understand or simple to understand. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, but either way, it's it's super interesting, and um, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So we'll talk about that. The other stuff I have for you, we already have our answer on impeachment and what's going to happen with impeachment with Trump in the Senate. And um, it ain't it ain't good, dog, but I did kind of warn you about it in advance. So you all knew, but there's plenty of people who didn't know. Um, then we're going to talk about the Democrats backing off the $2,000 checks. Um, I will be launching the nuclear weapons I have right at their face. Um, we're going to talk about the minimum wage increase, which was proposed now in the Senate. I'll give you the details of that. We have Biden's executive order on private prison use. On paper, it sounds very good. When you get into the details, it uh, barely does anything. You know, when I give you the numbers, you'll see. It impacts like 1% of prisons or something incredibly tiny. Um, and then, yeah, later on in the show, we'll get to what's going on with Trump's emoluments case, um, what Trump is up to these days, and um, what else do I got for you? Oh, there's a bunch of, I have a bunch of Fox Business clips, which is um, them totally out of character. So it's an interesting clip for that reason, or I should say it's interesting clips for that reason. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, I want to talk about this situation happening with Wall Street. Boy, oh boy, is there a really interesting situation unfolding right now with Wall Street. Um, Now, some people on Reddit, (laughs) um, they're doing something that I have to say is quite brilliant. It's Reddit trolls, and it is, honestly, it's genius. So I'm going to walk you through it. It's a little complicated to understand, but I think uh, you'll get the gist of it. So first, let's go to this Twitter thread, which I think actually explains it relatively well. This is from a guy by the name of William Legate. He says the following, Reddit Wall Street Bets is about to blow up another hedge fund, this one valued at $13.1 billion before the Reddit trolls decided to all buy GameStop, LOL. Now, again, he's going to explain this a little bit, and then I'll come back and explain it as well. Uh, Up nearly 100% just today after being up about 100% yesterday, LOL. Tell me we're not in a bubble. If GameStop goes up another 17%, this hedge fund will instantly collapse. $13.1 billion gone. Poof. Elon Musk just tweeted about the stock, and they're now trading at $192 after hours. If they open at this price, Melvin Capital will go bankrupt tomorrow morning. $13.1 billion in wealth transferred from Wall Street to Reddit trolls. What we're witnessing isn't a traditional pump and dump. It is an unorganized yet collective effort of meme lords and average Americans to completely ignore all market fundamentals and through the power of social media, bankrupt hedge funds overnight, taking their funds. Legality unclear. Reddit also uh, is in the process of memifying AMC stock to revive it from the dead. This is like 
as an Occupy Wall Street movement, but on their own turf and with real financial consequences. Incredible. So uh, one post, which I think was rather poignant, described this as, we originally had Occupy Wall Street, now we have Infiltrate Wall Street. So what's happening is this. A bunch of people on Reddit um, saw that when it comes to GameStop, the stock GameStop, um, it was massively shorted. It, like That's actually publicly available information. Um, you could see how much of the stock is shorted. Now, in layman's terms, what shorting a stock means is you're betting on the stock to fail. You're betting on the stock to go down. That's what shorting a stock means. So they saw that over 100% of GameStop stock of GameStop stock was shorted. So they looked at that. Some intelligent people on Reddit looked at that and they said, huh, this is clearly billionaire hedge funds betting on it to go down. And what happens is when you're shorting a stock, if you're shorting it over 100% of the value, you're kind of squeezing it out of existence. And not only are you squeezing it out of existence, you're making it so that they won't GameStop, if they, if they needed more access to capital to avoid bankruptcy, you're making it so they won't have access to that capital. So they could go bankrupt. And then, of course, the other downside is a lot of people will lose their jobs. So you have this billionaire hedge fund betting on GameStop to fail and then basically making that come to fruition by shorting it colossally and, like, squeezing it out of existence. So they'll make more money if slash when GameStop goes under. That's the gist of it. So some intelligent people on Reddit saw this, and they said, hmm, well, that's a risky bet to, to short GameStop and over 100% of its value. So because what can happen is when you're, when you're shorting a stock, losses can be infinite. Because what happens if the stock recovers? What happens if it becomes, you know, an incredibly profitable company and it starts doing well? So it's a very risky bet. It's a super risky bet. So what the people on Reddit did is they saw this and they said, well, we like GameStop because a lot of these people are gamers, right? So we like GameStop. And why don't we all buy the stock? And, you know, revive the company and make the stock worth a decent amount of money. And, you know, in the meantime, you get in relatively low and then the stock goes up, you know, you're making money. You're making money. So in other words, they're playing the market. That's what this is, man. <laughs> they, they looked at some shitty, risky bets from Wall Street hedge fund billionaires. They said, hmm, shorting it over 100% of the value, I mean – that's risky. There, we can make money if we buy it. And so it took off on Reddit. A lot of people on Reddit started buying, you know, GameStop stock. So what happened? They bought so much of it, so many people bought so much of it that the value skyrocketed literally. At least, I, this is in the last day, I think, 136% it went up. So now GameStop stock is worth 
$344.94 as I talk to you right now. I don't know what it started at. It started at like $4 or something like that. So what happened is they basically bankrupted the hedge fund that made that bet. Now, a lot of people are saying this and are seeing this in mainstream media, and they're saying, wow, they're manipulating the value of the stock. Like, this, this should be illegal. But I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm going, why was – okay, you're saying this should be illegal, but it's equally manipulating the stock when the billionaire hedge fund was shorting the stock over 100% of its value, squeezing it out of existence so that they can make another dime. So why is it that when the hedge fund billionaires manipulate the market and drive a company out of existence and get rich in the process, why does that not count as like hair on fire, they're manipulating the stock, and they're hurting real people in the real world who have jobs? So the real people who were manipulating the stock, it was the Wall Street billionaires. But guess what? They fucked around and they found out. Because now you had people who were smart enough to look at the, look at the bets of these billionaires and they responded rationally. You know what it's called when you see that they're shorting this stock and then you know you have a bunch of people who like that company and they want to buy the stock? That's called a smart investment. That's what that is. So again, not only did they do it with GameStop, then they moved on to AMC. AMC, you know, the movie theater company. And um, so they drove that up 211% so far. And all this happened because, you know, a loosely organized thing on Reddit. And can you guess the response? I'll tell you. They halted trading. They halted trading. So in other words, when regular people started playing the market and making money, shut it all down. Can't have that. And now they're actually having a conversation. I'm not kidding about this. This, uh, this popped up on Twitter right before I came on air to talk to you guys. They're actually having a conversation about potentially bailing out some of these companies, which is beyond ridiculous. I'll read you the exact tweet here. This is from Street Insider. It's like a Wall Street news company, I guess. CNBC's David Faber said he is hearing a number of hedge funds are in similar trouble that Melvin Capital saw in its GameStop situation and may need to be bailed out. Need, look at the wording. May need to be bailed out. So stop and think about this. When you say, hey, we need health care because 40,000 to 65,000 Americans die every year because they don't have access to basic health care, tens of millions of Americans don't have health insurance, medical bills is one of the top cause of bankruptcy. So you say we need health care, we need education, including college, we have over a trillion dollars in student loan debt, we need survival checks because 60% of the businesses that closed because of COVID are now permanently closed. 30% of the country can't make their housing payment. When you say those things, what do they say to you? Shut up, suck it up, here's some bootstraps. But when Wall Street billionaire hedge funds make shitty speculative bets and they lose, we quote, need a bailout. You need a bailout? You need a bailout. No, no, no. 
you want a bailout. Welfare for the people is somehow discounted immediately and not taken seriously, but corporate welfare is something that you need, that it's framed as like, well, obviously we're going to get this, right? I mean, listen, we lost all of our money making a shitty bet, so now the taxpayers have to rush in and bail me out, right? No, 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 no. I'd much rather have my tax money go towards healthcare, go towards education, go towards survival checks for people in the middle of a pandemic and effectively a depression. They need a bailout. Shouldn't be getting one. Shouldn't be getting one. But see, now you're going to see the ace up the sleeve of Wall Street. This is what a lot of people didn't understand or perhaps didn't get the extent to which this is true. What the Wall Street billionaires have over the regular people and the trolls on Reddit is that the Wall Street billionaires bought and owned the government. So when you buy and own the government, yeah, they're going to rush in to help you and bail you out. Just like what happened in 2008 and 2009 with the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. These companies made decisions that bankrupted themselves. And then the government rushed in, bailed them out, and they paid bonuses to the same people who crashed the world economy. So it's not about merit. And these aren't the smartest people in the room. These are the greediest people in the room, and they happen to have friends in high places. They're the greediest people in the room, and they bought and owned the government. So that's what people don't understand. That's the ace up the sleeve of the Wall Street hedge funds. So that's why we're even having this conversation about bailing out billionaire hedge funds simply because they made a bad bet, which gets to the main point and like the main reason why we're even talking about this, which is look at how it works. Look at how it works. These guys all day long are doing puts, they're doing calls, they're shorting stocks, they're doing all these incredibly risky casino capitalist bets. And all day long, they're, you know, hurting real people in the real world, whether it's what they did with the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession with these predatory loans, where they play hot potato with toxic assets, or what they're doing with GameStop, where it's like shorting it to squeeze it out of existence so they don't care that people are fired, they don't care that the company goes under, they get rich. So they're doing those things all day long, and they're making money. They're making money when they win in the market, and then they're also making money when they lose because the government rushes in and bails them out. So they get to do that all day long. All that happened here is that people on Reddit said, okay, we see your shitty rules in this terrible game. We are now also going to partake in this terrible game, and we're going to use the same rules that you do, and we're going to beat you. We're going to outsmart you. And what does Wall Street do in that situation? Shut it all down. Shut it all down. Change the rules. This is unfair. Yes, I know I was winning with these same rules forever, for decades. But now, since I'm losing with these same rules, it's time to change the rules. And also, by the way, let's rig the rules so only I can win. That's literally what's going on here. So, again, the main thing you need to take away from this segment is that the media is now going to go all in trying to act like Reddit is the problem. The people on Reddit are the problem. And what they'll do is they'll isolate silly things people are saying when they're playing games. And, you know, it's a meme. Like, they're fucking around. They're calling each other silly names. So what they'll do is they'll isolate that stuff and say, see, these people are so unhinged. Look at what they're doing. But the real market manipulation did not start with the people on Reddit. The real market manipulation was the billionaire hedge funds squeezing a company out of existence, 
shorting a stock over 100% of its value that has real-world consequences and real-world effects. GameStop, if they, at the time when they would need more capital, they wouldn't be able to access that capital. And people would be fired. People would lose their job. This is people pushing numbers around on a computer screen and fucking real world and fucking real people in the real world. Okay. So that's the real market manipulation. And then what happened was people on Reddit saw the stupid fucked up bets that billionaire hedge funds were making. And so they said, okay, you want to play a free market game? Let's play a free market game. We're going to beat you at your own game. And so free people bought stock and it went up. And if the market really was free, they put these hedge funds out of business. And that's what we call tough cookies. And that's what I call, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Because you win all the time with these bets. Fair and unfair. And then the one time you lose, all of a sudden, oh, this is, uh, now we need a bailout. We need corporate welfare. We need to change the rules. Or no, you've been hoisted on your own petard. Like this is, this is the logical consequence of people now beating you at your own game because they're more intelligent than you. So suck it up. The real market manipulation was from the billionaire hedge funds. And this is Reddit saying, we could play this game too. So we're all going to make a bet in the other direction. And it looks like we won. But what's crazy is you're very likely to get more government action. There's already been more government action from this than you're, you're going to get when, for example, we learned that there was massive insider trading right before COVID. Kelly Leffler and other politicians massively selling their stock because they were in on a government meeting where they said, hey, guys, COVID's going to be really bad and the market's probably going to crash. So just a heads up, wink, wink. And what did they do? They all ran and sold their stock. So there's going to be more government action from this, which is a lot more legit. What the Reddit people did is playing by the rules that they set up. There's going to be more government action over this than there was when there was actual corruption and fuckery. I don't know what the, what the result is going to be, but it's very likely that you're going to have a situation where maybe they ban some of these apps and maybe they try to find a way to ban regular people from trading and partaking in the stock market. Maybe that's what they do. I could definitely see them do that. But like, you just, you need to understand who the bad guys are in this situation. It's not the people on Reddit who were, who saw a shitty fucked up bet being made by hedge funds and they bet in the other direction. And it just so happened it caught on and they had the numbers where they were the ones who made money and they put the hedge fund out of business or nominally they did. They'll probably get that bailout. But like those people did not do anything wrong. Those people made a rational investment based off of evidence that they saw. Again, watch the media is going to have you hating the Reddit people and loving the assholes with suits and ties who are corrupt and bought the government. Don't fall for it. Okay. What an amazing story that is, huh? That really is an amazing story. Okay. Let's move on. We're going to talk about impeachment now.
So we already have our answer on the issue of impeachment, and it's not the one I think most people want to hear. Forty-five Republicans vote with Rand Paul on this procedural motion, essentially calling the trial unconstitutional, including Mitch McConnell. This is over before it even starts. So we didn't even get to the point where you're actually voting on whether or not to impeach Donald Trump, because 45 Republicans are saying even having the trial is unconstitutional. Even having the trial would be a sham. So let's throw it out now. 45 Republicans. Now, listen, to be fair to them, their argument isn't crazy. Their argument is he's not in office anymore. So why are we even wasting our time? I mean, listen, I don't want to agree with the, the ghouls, the worst people in the fucking country. But, I mean, that, again, that is a fair point. That's certainly not a crazy thing to say by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but having said that, and here's the part that nobody else is going to talk about, and they should. There's no reason not to do the 14th Amendment now. There's no reason whatsoever. So under the 14th Amendment, if you provide aid and comfort to people who are doing an insurrection, then with a simple majority, you can ban whoever was providing aid and comfort from ever holding elected office again in the United States of America. So for impeachment was always a long shot. And that's why I was telling you guys from the beginning, you'd have to get 16 or 17 Republicans. You have to get anywhere near that. Like, what's the best case scenario? Five Republicans? Five, four, five, something like that? 16 or 17, you're just not going to get it. You're not going to get it. So that was always like mission impossible. And it was always a long shot. But what's not a long shot at all, in fact, what's kind of like a layup is the 14th Amendment. Now, listen, I think you should have done the 14th Amendment immediately because that's when tensions were at their highest and people were feeling most passionately about the diet coup attempt. Um, and they didn't do it immediately. But again, now, after it's clear that impeachment beyond failed, I mean, this is just like embarrassingly failing. Um, why would you not do it? So the House should pick it up right away. Simple majority. They'll easily get a simple majority. Um, and then the Senate can pick it up and you're good with 51 votes. All you have to do is hold Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema and you're good. You're good. And I think you might be able to. Because, again, he was providing aid and comfort to people who were attempting an insurrection. I don't even think that's debatable. He was talking out of both sides of his mouth. I do think it's debatable. Like, he, did, he wasn't actually, like, leading the insurrection. That's obvious. But he was talking out of both sides of his mouth. And half the time saying, like, the election's so fraudulent. Somebody should do something about this. We should go to the Capitol. He did that. So that is aid and comfort to people trying to overthrow the government, even though it was, you know, a pathetic attempt and they were never going to succeed. That is what it is. So I think you can get the 51 votes. That means he'd never be able to hold office again, which means you end the, the Trump nightmare for the Republican Party, um, which is good for the elected Republicans, which actually now makes me come full circle and say, maybe that is why they're not doing it. I don't think they're that smart. I don't think the Democrats have thought this through that much. But yeah, if you were to do that, the result is Mitch McConnell's happier. Every establishment Republican is happier because you've concluded the GOP civil war without them having to actually engage in it. And I think they're going to have to engage in it. You know, like 
because there's a poll that just came out. 30% of the Republican Party is more interested in the Trump Patriot Party than they are in the Republican Party. But 33% of Republicans are, would stick with the Republicans over the Patriot Party. So you got 30% versus 33%. That's almost a split perfectly down the middle um, for some sort of Patriot Party. That doesn't equal 100%. <laughs> that just occurred to me now, but that's what the poll said. Um, so I don't know. That GOP civil war would be incredibly dirty, would be incredibly messy, would be vicious, and I would love every second of it. So maybe that's why the Democrats, by not banning Trump from running in the future, they're also sort of damning the Republicans to a civil war. But then also what you're doing is you're rolling the dice that if Trump runs in 2024, if he wins the nomination, I mean, if you have like Kamala Harris up against Donald Trump, you actually are risking Trump getting another four years. So then again, you go full circle one more time and you say, hey, maybe they should do a 14th Amendment thing. Listen, on the merits, I think they should do the 14th Amendment because he did provide aid and comfort to people attempting an insurrection. Even though it was comical, even though they failed, even though it never had any prayer of, win- of succeeding, that's what he did. So on the merits, yeah, you can, you can do it and ban him from ever holding office again and be done with it. But what we know for sure is not only did impeachment fail, it failed terribly and embarrassingly. So listen, in all seriousness, it, yet again, it was a waste of time. It was. Because um, you may as well go with the thing that has the same logical consequence and punishment, Trump never being able to hold office again, but all you need is a simple majority, so it's a zillion times easier. So why didn't you do that from the very beginning? So anyway, here we are. Even Mitch McConnell bent the knee. Because you know what? He calculated... I can't take on half of our base. You know, if that number was like 15% of the base, he may have taken on that fight. But he said, I can't take on half of the base. I can't take on half of the base. And the other thing that this shows is he's confident that he can also get the moneyed interest back on his side without waging a war with half of his base, without really trying to behead Trump for the world to see. He thinks I could still get the corporations on my side while also appeasing Trump in a way. And he probably does fear Trump starting a Patriot Party, and so he said we can't do impeachment because then it makes it even more likely he'll start that Patriot Party. So there's a lot of different factors that weigh in here. But either way, the end result is impeachment, colossal failure. I think they should do the 14th Amendment, but I don't think they're really going to do it. Okay. All right, let's go to let's go to the Democrats lying about their $2,000 checks. I'm a reasonable guy. I'm a reasonable guy. I try my best to be fair. I'll give credit when credit is due. I'm going to go after somebody when it's merited. Um, I gave them a week. I gave them a full week to make it happen, to make good on their promise. But the Democrats did not come through on the $2,000 checks. Here's a reminder of what they said when they wanted your vote. We will be able to pass $2,000 stimulus checks for the people next week when we win these races in Georgia and get economic relief directly into the bank accounts 
of the American people who are suffering right now. Why well, like these gentlemen the record, you can make an immediate difference in your own lives, the lives of the people all across this country, because their election will put an end to the block in Washington tonight's $2,000 stimulus check. That money that will go out the door immediately help people who are in real trouble. They lied. There's no other way you can fairly analyze this situation. There's no way. The objective truth is that they lied. They lied. They said $2,000 checks. They said within the first week. Your interpretation, you know, you interpret it however you want. First week is very clear. There's no wiggle room on that one. Biden said immediately. I mean, you could argue that immediately means within the first two or three days. So however you want to look at it, it's either within the first two or three days or the first week. That's what they said. I didn't say it. They said it. They said it. I didn't say it. They said it. Now, some people say, well, they were saying $2,000 checks before the $600 checks. So now that they lowered it to $1,400, they still get full credit. I don't agree with giving them full credit. I'll, I'll give you that it's ambiguous. And there is an argument they can make, but they were also saying $2,000 checks after the 600 already passed. So if you're saying 2000, it's not like immediately after the 600 passed, then they went out there and said 1400 more. No, they said 2000 after the 600 already passed. So I would mean a total of 2600, not a total of 2000. So, but anyway, I digress from that point. What happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened. I'll walk you through the timeline here. So they said $2,000 immediately and $2,000 in the first week. Then, as soon as Biden got elected, that became, it's not $2,000 checks. It's 2000 total. So that's the first little weasel move. And now it's not, not 2000 immediately or in the first week. It's, it's going to be in a broader package of a $1.9 trillion package and we're going to get it through regular order in the Senate, which means we need it to be bipartisan. So already they've like moved the goalpost and changed it a bunch of times. It went from 2000 to 1400. And then it went from like a standalone bill was the implication. And then the standalone became a much bigger $1.9 trillion package. Um, Now there are plenty of good things in that $1.9 trillion package, but you know what? Making the standalone bill a, a very complex package makes it way less likely that it's going to pass, especially because, we just had a COVID relief bill passed not that long ago. You think they're going to go back to back on, on like multi-trillion dollar bills? They're not going to do that. And, you know, I think they know that they're not going to do that. So why are you even trying that? It almost seems like you don't really want it to get through. You just want the credit for proposing it without the actual victory of getting it through. So now, again, on that part, it's speculation. You can call me a conspiracy theorist, but these, they're not dumb. They're not dumb. They know that making it a giant package of $1.9 trillion, that it makes it way less likely it's going to pass. So $2,000 checks immediately within the first week became $1,400 checks, became the $1,400 checks are in a bigger package of $1.9 trillion. And then that became, we're going, to go, we're going to do that through regular order, which requires 60 votes. How many Democratic votes are there right now? 51, including Kamala Harris. Where are you going to get nine Republicans from for your $1.9 trillion package? Where are you going to get them from? Where are you going to get them from? 
if I'm being as kind as humanly possible, you get Hawley because he said he's in favor of $2,000 checks. Now, do I know if Hawley's in favor of the rest of that shit? No. No. But $2,000 checks he is. Okay, I'll give you Hawley. Rubio also says he wants $2,000 checks. Okay, two. There you go. I got you two. Lindsey Graham says he wants $2,000 checks. Okay, I'll give you him too. And again, I don't know if Rubio or Graham would support the rest of the $1.9 trillion package. But I'm being nice and I'm giving the Democrats the three so far that I know are for the $2,000 checks. After that, you're assed out, dog. You're assed out. You can get six more. You're not going to get six more. You're probably not even going to get the three I gave you. So what are you doing? What are you doing? So then they went from $2,000 checks immediately within the first week to $1,400 to $1,400 as part of a $1.9 trillion package through regular order. And guess what? That's where we are right now. So what they're saying is, hey, maybe we'll do that through reconciliation. Reconciliation is the process where you can actually get it through with 51 votes. Apparently, you get three, three chances at reconciliation every year, and there are rules as to what can and can't go through reconciliation. Um, but the problem is it takes a long time to get something through reconciliation. You need hours and hours and hours of open debate. So they haven't even started the process of getting that through reconciliation. So you, there's no way you're going to get it immediately or within the first week. If you were going to try to do that, you should have done it immediately. On day one, you should have said, we're going to start getting this through reconciliation. And even then, it wouldn't get out fast enough. But at least you would have started the process and given people an argument like, hey, I did what I could do because I'm trying to get it through reconciliation and I'm doing it like right away. So, I mean, guys, look at the result here. We went from $2,000 checks to $1,400 checks to, okay, put that in a bigger package, which is not going to get through with 60 votes. That bigger package might not even get through with 51 votes. Because all the things that are in it, I'm sure Manchin and Cinema are going to find something to be like, I don't like that and I don't like that, so I'm not in favor of that. And then you keep pushing it back because you didn't even try to get it through reconciliation yet. So now the $2,000 checks became $1,400 checks. And I, one person said, one Democratic insider said, we'll get it out by March. Another person says by April. So in other words, you lied. You lied. You lied. John Ossoff lied. Warnock lied. Biden lied. You all lied. So understand something. People don't accept this. People are people, man. And there were a lot of interviews that happened in Georgia after the Democrats won. And we covered the article in media. People were saying, I feel flat out betrayed. The people who were canvassing for the Democrats say, I feel betrayed. I was lying to people. I didn't even know I was lying to people. You can't get away with shit like this. You can't get away with shit like this because at some point human nature kicks in and people say, you're full of shit. I put hopes in you and then you stabbed us in the back. Don't come back around and ask me for a vote again. This is what's going to happen. And I guess the reason why we're talking about this is I'm trying to stress that it doesn't matter if you say, hey, the other guys suck 100% of the time and I only suck 80% of the time. So that 20% difference matters. Now listen, that point is true. That 20% difference does, difference does matter, for sure. But people are going to say, you stabbed me in the back, I don't care. Human nature will override that calculation, for sure. Because that's how people operate. You know, it really was a brazen, bold, disgusting lie. It's already being compared to 
Remember when George H.W. Bush said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then he did new taxes. Now, I'm sure he has his arguments and he has his reasons, and oh my God, we had a big, big deficit and a big debt, and we needed to make up the difference, and the taxes I raised didn't affect the majority of the population. I'm sure he has his reasons, but he said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then he did taxes, and he lost. This was a read my lips, $2,000 check immediately within the first week, and then you didn't do it. The most fucked up part is, don't let them ever tell you differently. They could have done it. What Biden could have done, there were two ways to approach it where he could have made good on his promise. One of them is, day one, you send a standalone $2,000 checks bill, um, and you try to get it through regular order. You try to get the 60 votes. Now, you will find out within the first two or three days you can't get those 60 votes. And then what you did is you've effectively put political pressure on the Republicans because they're the reason you can't get it through regular order. And then on day two or three, you start the process to get it through reconciliation. Now, you still wouldn't get the checks out within the first week, but you did everything you could to do that. You did everything in your power to make that come to fruition. So you would get credit, even, if, even though the checks wouldn't go out in the first week. You would have started a process to get them out in the first week. Or the other thing you could have done is you don't even need to do the political maneuvering of trying to get it through regular order and then blaming the Republicans when they slap it down. You could have immediately took the $2,000 standalone bill and done it through reconciliation. On day one, you could have started the process for reconciliation with those checks. You didn't do that either. And I'll be even kinder. You could have done a bigger package, $1.9 trillion package with $2,000 checks, and started that through reconciliation on day one. And even then I'd give you credit. But you didn't do any of that. You did none of that. So it, it's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. It's bullshit. And it doesn't, you could point like to, oh, this part of the bill is good and this part of the bill is good. I would agree with you that certain parts of that $1.9 trillion bill, most of that stuff is good. But you still lied and backed out of your word. And that was one of the main reasons why people voted for you. And you stabbed them in the back. This is people's lives we're talking about, guys. This is what everybody needs to understand. We are in a situation right now that is four times worse than the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession in terms of job loss. Four times worse. 30% of the country can't pay their housing bill. 60% of the businesses that shut due to COVID are now permanently shut. People are slipping into poverty all around this nation. People are, more people are food insecure maybe than ever in U.S. history. One article said 40% of the country is food insecure now. 40% of the country. You can't say $2,000 checks and then not do $2,000 checks. You can't do it. People are going to tell you to go fuck yourself. And you know what? I agree with them. Go fuck yourself. Start the process now to get those $2,000 checks out. And if you don't, don't bitch and moan when there are consequences, because there will be consequences. Now, the fact of the matter is, the Republican Party is on the brink of a civil war amongst themselves, and they don't stand for anything except culture war garbage and serving the establishment. So, you know, it's not like it's a guarantee the Republicans win in 2022 or 2024. But I will say the Democrats, with a move like this, it's almost like it's a race to the bottom to see who could be the worst. And the Democrats are trying their best to win that race. And brazen lies like this don't go over very well. So they better make good on their promise. It's already too late to make good on their promise but they better do everything that they can from this second onward because this is disgusting and unacceptable.
Okay, now let's talk about the minimum wage. So NBC News is reporting something that I think people will be happy about. Just in, House and Senate Democrats introduced legislation to raise the federal minimum wage from $7.25 an hour to $15 by 2025. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to point out is what everybody else is pointing out, which is 2025, really. Now, understand, guys, um, usually with bills like this, there's always a phase-in period. That's not unique. That's common. There's always a phase-in period for stuff like this. Um, But do I agree with the criticism that the phase-in is too long? Yeah, I do. I think that 2025 is, I mean, that's literally years in the future. I mean, maybe you could squeeze that timeline to like two years to get it to $15 an hour. And I'd be like, okay, I I see. Because there is a benefit to doing it gradually versus a blunt all at once thing. But yeah, 2025 is, that's a long way off. So I agree with the criticism that that's too long of a timeline. They should have crunched that a, a little bit. Now, the other thing people are pointing to is they chained this to median wage growth. Now, my first thought was, oh, well, that's a bullshit way of weaseling out of having regular raises attached to it. But it turns out my gut reaction was incorrect, because when you do the math on it, you find out that chaining it to median wage growth actually is even a little bit better than chaining it to inflation. See, because that's what I would have originally thought was the right way to go. You do a $15 an hour minimum wage, a living wage, and then you chain it to inflation so that it always remains a living wage. I thought chaining it to median wage growth is a problem because that doesn't grow as much as inflation, but I was wrong because the numbers show it's actually a little bit better than chaining it to inflation. So that's a good thing. It's a good thing that they're chaining it to median wage growth. Now you could say, hey, chaining it to inflation might be more consistent over an extended period of time where you get better regular raises. That might be true. So maybe the way to do it is to go with inflation, which is the original idea that I liked. But suffice to say that at least in terms of roughly how it works out, it's almost like you are chaining it to inflation by chaining it to median wage growth. Okay, so so one of the criticisms I think is legit. They should crunch that timeline more. The other criticism, which I had, turns out it's just incorrect when you do the numbers on it, when you do the math on it. So listen, I mean, this is good. This is good. Now the question becomes the process behind it. So I don't know that an increase in the minimum wage is part of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that they brought up last week. So I don't know exactly the mechanics of what's going on here. They're sort of throwing a bunch of things at the wall, and I guess they're seeing what sticks. But you're not going to get this through with 60 votes. In a world that made sense, you actually would, because it's an 80% issue in the country. You're not going to get this through with 60 votes through regular order. So, again, you'd need reconciliation to get it through, 51 votes. Um, And there appears to be a little bit of a battle behind the scenes as to whether or not they're actually going to do it through reconciliation. Bernie is doing everything he can to get it through reconciliation. He's saying if we can't get it through regular order, we better do it through reconciliation ASAP. In fact, he's talking with the Congressional Budget Office. Then they crunch the numbers on stuff like this. And he's trying to make the case that, listen, this thing is 
this thing is a giant win for the economy because when you raise the minimum wage, what happens is one of the consequences of that is people end up getting off of other government programs because people right now work for starvation wages and then they need to run to the government to get SNAP, food stamps, in order to survive. So if you raise the minimum wage, a lot of people will be off of food stamps because now they make enough money on their own to afford the food. So Bernie's been making the case behind the scenes that this actually reduces the welfare state when you raise the wage, because now you're just making it so corporations pick up more of the bill than the government does. So he's arguing that behind the scenes. He's saying, for sure, we're going to put this through reconciliation if it doesn't get through regular order. And now I just learned before I came on air, the number two Democrat in the Senate said the same thing, said, yes, we'll do it through reconciliation if need be. So now the question becomes, okay, it looks like they're going to do it through reconciliation. They better do it through reconciliation. But are they going to do just this through reconciliation? Are they going to pair it with other things? Now, the benefit of doing just this is giant wins in terms of marketing, where you could slam the Republicans all day long and say, we are the ones who raised wages. Look, we did it. We did it in a standalone bill, a standalone bill. Um, so that's the upside of it. The downside of doing it through reconciliation is you only get three shots of reconciliation per year, and to do just this as opposed to a package means you're sort of limiting the amount of progressive change that you can get through. So I don't know. I don't know which is the right way. All I know is they fucking better get it through reconciliation because I still fear a little bit at that last moment the Democrats will do a classic Democratic move and say, oh, gosh, golly, I don't think we can get it through reconciliation because maybe it's just not the right thing to get through reconciliation and maybe it doesn't meet the rules very much. So maybe we should not try to get it through reconciliation and we should just lay down in a chalk outline of ourselves. The Republicans, you know what they got through reconciliation? Their giant tax cut for corporations and the rich, which added about $2 trillion to the deficit. So they put whatever the hell they wanted through reconciliation. The Democrats are like debating, maybe, maybe not, get an increase in the minimum wage through uh, reconciliation. They better do it, man. I'm leaning towards they probably will do it, but I still fear at the last minute they're going to bitch out. So we'll see. But listen, this is good. Um, And, you know, I, I mean, I hope they'll change it. To crunch that timeline a little bit, 2025 is a long way off, but um, we're close, man. We're getting close. Like, we might have some very, very tangible wins very soon. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Joe Biden's executive orders. Stay right there. We'll be right back, guys.
Sorry, y'all. I'm back. I am back. I am back. <clears throat> Let's move along. We got a bunch of Biden's executive orders to talk about. Bunch of them. Okay. Here we go, baby. Here we go. So we have some good news, nominally some good news, but I'll give you the specifics here and you can determine for yourself what you think of it. Biden to sign executive order requiring federal government to buy American. So when I first saw these headlines, I was over the moon excited because this is something that is genuinely populist. The idea of buying American, um, what it's supposed to be is it's a mandate for the federal government to only purchase products that are made in America. And the federal government buys a lot of stuff. So that would be a big, big, um, you know, boon to manufacturing in this country, which is something I care deeply about. And, you know, I think most leftists care deeply about is like bringing a lot of good, high paying jobs back to this country. And, you know, particularly in manufacturing, that would be a wonderful thing to have like good union jobs in manufacturing in America. Um, So this is something I care deeply about. Trump campaigned on the idea that he was going to do Buy America stuff, but it was all a front. It was all a facade because he signed Buy American executive orders, but he ended up just signing symbolic Buy America executive orders. Like one of the things he did was a Buy America week. So like the White House was showcasing products made in America and they like showed them off for a week. And we're all supposed to clap and say, oh, yes, you're, doing, you're so great for reinvigorating manufacturing in the United States. He didn't do that. In fact, under Trump, there was a net loss of factory jobs. We've, you know, in the first year, there were over 100,000 jobs that were outsourced. So you know, he, he was a fake populist. He didn't actually do these things. So now Biden comes along. I was reading the headlines. I read a bunch of the articles. And it looked to me like he was signing the executive order that I wanted him to sign. But there was one article in particular that went into a little more of the, the specifics and the details. And, of course, it's not as good as I had hoped it was. Um, basically what this does, what this executive order does, it increases the price preference for American goods. So nominally that should lead to more American products being bought by the federal government. But the other thing it does is it uh, changes how domestic content is measured. So it's the amount of a product that must be made in the U.S. for it to qualify as made in the U.S. Now, the thing is, the rules that we had under Obama, under Trump, nominally you need stuff to be made in America, but there was a big loophole where we said that includes all of our allies. So if you're an ally to the U.S., like Israel, for example, if they make something in Israel, we count that as made in America. Or at the very least, like, I don't know, I don't know the, every detail of it, but like, let's say the product is made in Israel, but it's like assembled in the U.S. or something. They would say, oh, that counts as made in America, even though it was made in Israel. There are these giant loopholes. Um, so what Biden is doing is he's 
making the loopholes a little less egregious. But the devil is in the details, and we don't have all the specifics, but even the article I read that has the most specifics, it really just says that this executive order increases the price preference for American goods, and it changes how the content is measured and the amount of the product that needs to be made in the U.S. for it to, consider, to, for it to be considered made in America. So, but we, again, we don't know because we don't have the exact numbers um, what would count as made in America and what wouldn't. But if I was a betting man, I would bet on the fact that this is not going to be nearly as aggressive as I want it to be. It's not going to be an actual rule that says the federal government can only buy made in America if it's really made in America. I don't think it's going to be that. It's just going to be like, tweaking what's acceptable and making it a little bit better so that a little more of the stuff is made in America. You know what I mean? So it's good and I want to give credit, but as always, the devil is in the details on these things and you have to be careful because we're going to get to another story about another executive order he signed and the headlines are all brilliant, but then you read the specifics and the devil's in the details and it's actually not that good of an executive order. It's like a baby step in the right direction, but you know, you moved an inch in the right direction, and you still got 100 yards in front of you. It's like, should I really give you that much credit? I don't know. I don't know. So, listen, I want, I'm rooting for Biden. I want him to do the right things. I want him to be the next FDR when it comes to the economy. Um, so, like, I'm looking for it, man, and I want to come out here and say he did a great thing, full stop. But, like, this Buy American Executive Order, it's a little Weasley. And the same thing with the, um, with, um, what was the other one? The raising the minimum wage for federal contractors, if you read it carefully, every headline was like, Biden begins the process of raising the minimum wage for federal contractors. And it's like, why does it say process? Why doesn't it say Biden raises the minimum wage for federal contractors? Why, what are you talking about a process? Because I remember when Obama signed that executive order, if I, if I remember correctly, he just raised it for federal contractors. Now we're talking about a process. He begins the process by which you raise it. That looks, reads to me like they're looking for ways to weasel out of it. You know what I mean? And this is the same thing. It's better than Trump. It's better than Trump, right? Because he's going a little further than Trump did. But it's not, it's not what we want it to be. It's still like weaselly, and there are still pretty big loopholes. So, again, we'll wait until we see the specifics of it. But, you know, this is by American, and it's just inching in the right direction. And he should go a hell of a lot further. I'm looking for a real populist to come in and say, no, seriously, the federal government only buys American, and we mean that. No Weasley shit like it includes our allies. No Weasley shit like, oh, it only has to be assembled here. No, we're going to build here. And guess what? If we currently don't have the infrastructure to make the shit here, well, then that's the next thing I'm going to do is help create the infrastructure to make the shit here. You know, do that crazy thing a government should do, like look out for its own citizens and create jobs. So, um, I mean, again, you determine how much credit you want to give him for this. It's certainly better than Trump, but I do think ultimately it's pretty weaselly, and I would like him for him to go not just a little further, but a lot further. Okay, next. Here we go, the next. Joe Biden executive order that we're going to talk about. So Joe Biden um, signed another interesting executive order that we're going to talk about. 
Joe Biden to order Justice Department to end private prison use. Now, when I read that, your interpretation is probably the same interpretation that I had, which is like, oh, that is unequivocally a great thing, full stop. Like, that's just positive. It reads like he's banning private prisons. Biden to order Justice Department to end private prison use. Biden to order the Justice Department to end private prison use. So, so, this executive order on prisons applies only to the Justice Department contracts with privately operated criminal detention facilities. There are 12 such facilities in the U.S., and they house a total of about 14,000 federal prisoners. So, you're only doing this for Justice Department prisons, and there aren't a lot of Justice Department prisons, and they house 14,000 prisoners. To put that into perspective for you, the total U.S. prison population is about 2.2 million. 2.2 million. And he's shutting down private prisons, or not allowing the renewal of contracts with private prisons that house 14,000 people. 2.2 2.2 million, 14,000. By the way, I don't know the exact number of, I looked for it, I couldn't find it, the exact number of prisoners in private prisons, because it's not that full 2.2 million, obviously. Um, but just to give you a little bit of a sense of how bad it is in other areas, ICE detention facilities, about 67% of ICE detention facilities are private prisons. Biden could have signed an executive order saying, we're going to shut down the private prisons for ICE as well. He didn't. He didn't. He only did it for Justice Department prisons. And again, Justice Department prisons, there are 12 such facilities that house 14,000 prisoners. So listen, is this a step in the right direction? Is it a good thing? Yes, of course. Would I rather have the private prisons that are contracted with the Justice Department shut down And instead of private prisons, you have public prisons. Yes, without a doubt, because these things have a history of abuse and all types of problems with it. By the way, um, Management and Training Corporation and GEO Group and Core Civic are the the main uh, private prisons. So it is a good thing. It is a step in the right direction, but it only applies to 14,000 prisoners. There's 2.2 million prisoners in the U.S. in total. That's, you know, federal, state, local. At the end of 2019, there were about 116,000 prisoners held in privately operated facilities. Oh, I do have that number, which represents roughly 7% of all state prisoners and 16% of all federal prisoners. Okay, so there you go. At the end of 2019, there were 116,000 prisoners in privately operated facilities. And he's he's saying 14,000 of them are now going to be moved to public facilities, and we're going to shut down those private facilities. So 14,000 out of 116,000. Step in the right direction for sure, but really the next thing he should do is say the ICE detention private facilities, those need to be shut down. And again, 67% of them are private, okay? Um, And there's a lot of abuses there. In fact, there's a court case about how at some of these facilities, they're doing forced labor, which, what's another name for that? Slavery. So that's what he needs to do next. Now, there's an open legal question. I don't even know if it's an open legal question, to be fair. But, like, does Joe Biden have the authority to do an executive order to shut down all private prisons in the country? Probably not. 
Um, but Congress would be able to do that. Congress could pass a law saying no more private prisons. But what Joe Biden can do is say all of the, all of the federal government private prisons, all the, all the federal contracts with private prisons can be not renewed or sh- shut down. And he didn't do that. He just did it for the Justice Department, which is a small number of the private prisons. But he can, if he so chooses, say all the other private prisons that the federal government contracts with, whether it's the Justice Department, whether it's ICE, whether it's some other government agency, those he can get rid of. But he only did it for the Justice Department, which is only a tiny baby step in the right direction, but he's got a long way to go. So honestly, listen, you've got to keep it real. Even though this is a step in the right direction, it really is more symbolic than anything. Because if he really had an ideological issue with private prisons, he could have, in the same executive order, said, we're shutting down all the ICE detention private prisons. But he didn't do that. He didn't do it. So, you know, the point is, you've got to keep these things in perspective. And a lot of the headlines are just misleading. Like, they're, they're just giving him too much credit up front. And when you read the specifics, the devil's always in the details. And it's like, you get a little bit of credit, but not nearly as much as everybody's giving you right now. Because everybody went crazy. I went crazy when I first saw the headlines. I was like, yes, he's shutting down private prisons. And then when you read the specifics, it's like only 14,000. There's 116,000 prisoners in private prisons in the country. And he's leaving the ICE private prisons as is. And 67% of ICE detainees are in private prisons. So anyway, I don't, it's, it's always an issue when you're trying to figure out how to cover these things. Because I'm trying to give it the most accurate coverage I can possibly give it. You know what I mean? Which means... Give credit where credit is due, but also keep it in perspective and criticize where you need to criticize. And so, you know, I'm doing the best I can with that. I know you guys, maybe some of you would put an emphasis on a different part of the story or some of you lean more on the side of giving credit anyway. Some of you lean more on the side of like, no, this is sort of bullshit window dressing. I'm just giving it to you as clearly as I can give it to you and as accurately as I can give it to you based on my interpretation of the set of facts. But there you have it. These are the facts. Now, oh, fuck. Now let's talk about Joe Scarborough. Joe Scarborough mocked people, on Twitter in particular, who want more from Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema want better from the conservative Democrats in the Senate, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Now, this specific conversation is around the filibuster. Um, and, but, but it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just the filibuster. It, it gets to the core of like the existence of these conservative Democrats and the role that they play. And you're going to see here, Joe Scarborough is a vociferous defender now of these conservative Democrats. And he's mocking people who are kind of prodding them and pushing them to do better. Yeah, okay, see, I, it's funny. I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's not funny to Kristen but, you know, I'm looking on Twitter and I'm hearing some of these comments from people attacking Kristen Sinema. Well, she can just leave the party. And I'm saying, I think, what? What are you, a Republican in Georgia? Like, Kristen, you have two Democratic senators. And John McCain and Barry Goldwater state. And you 
You want them to leave? What? Do you think you're going to get Che Guevara elected out there? It's like, seriously. <laughs> when are people going to grow up? And Joe Manchin? He's voting. Like, he's, he's a Democrat. Last he Democrat made, from West Virginia. He, he made Democrats the majority party. He is in a state that Donald Trump won 68% to 29%. And he's an idiot on Twitter? Okay, so now when it comes to the conversation about the filibuster, I actually have mixed feelings on it. I don't agree with people who are just like, Fucking get rid of it, bro, because that's going to be good for the left, period. And it's like, no, because what happens when we're in the minority, as we inevitably will be in the future, maybe even the near future? What then? Then you're going to be like, fuck, I wish we still had that filibuster. So I don't even necessarily agree with like the, the, the fervor now that's like, get rid of the filibuster. And the other thing is, I don't know why people are trying to run before we can crawl, because all you need to do to get what you want is tell the Democrats, stop fucking around and do shit through reconciliation right now. You can pass something with 51 votes through the process of reconciliation. That's what the Republicans use for their tax cuts for the rich bill. So I don't know why people are like acting like reconciliation isn't even an option and, and, and it isn't even on the table when that's like the number one thing you should be yelling at Democrats to do, because you could get something passed with 51 votes right now. And it doesn't require abolishing the filibuster in order to do it. So anyway, I'm a little torn on that conversation. I get where people are coming from when they say, even as a matter of principle, like a simple majority should get shit passed. Yeah, I see that argument for sure. But it's just weird to me that it's like, why are you, again, you're aiming at the harder thing as opposed to just doing the easier thing with the same result, which is reconciliation. I see this a lot. It's like with impeachment. Hey, let's try to do impeachment, which requires getting 16 or 17 Republican senators because we don't want Donald Trump to ever be able to run for office again. Okay, but why would you do that through impeachment Well, you could just do that through the 14th Amendment and get that same result with a simple majority? You won't be able to run, and you only need a simple majority, as opposed to needing 16 or 17 Republican senators. Like, why are you making life harder for yourself? Anyway, I digress. So on this specific issue, I'm not even necessarily disagreeing with Joe Scarborough and with the people on the panel there, but the problem is this. His over-defense of the conservative Democrats, the blue dog Democrats, the corporate Democrats. Um, This is a guy who just last week or a few weeks ago had on his show an author who's an expert in FDR and the New Deal and the neoliberal turn for the Democratic Party. And Joe Scarborough was applauding the guy and was agreeing with him with everything he was saying when this guy was like, you know, social democracy is the way forward and the conservative Democrats are the fucking problem. And they need to be purged from the party. And we got to go FDR style now. Joe Scarborough was agreeing with everything that that guy was saying. Now he turns around a couple weeks later and he's defending the people who he agreed were the exact problem in the Democratic Party. What are you doing? And that gets to the biggest issue here, which is this. There's this mythology out there. Only somebody like Kirsten Sinema, who's a Democrat, can win in Arizona. Only somebody like Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat, can win in West Virginia because those states are so conservative that you have to vote for a conservative Democrat. So the Democrat has to be a lot like the Republican. Bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on that. Because in the case of Manchin in particular, in West Virginia, it's not like West Virginia workers 
co-workers are like, you know, I really want my senator to deregulate Wall Street and cut taxes for the rich more. That's what I want. They don't think that at all. They don't want a conservative Democrat. They want a populist Democrat. They want a pro-working class Democrat. And Joe Manchin is not populist, and he's not pro-working class. That's why he said no to the $2,000 checks, and it was only after an aggressive campaign forced him to say, did I say no? I meant maybe, and probably I'm actually in favor of it. See, here's the thing. They don't make the right distinctions. In the case of Joe Manchin, the only ways in which his voting base are conservative are on, like, social issues. So, yeah, you'll have people who are, like, pro-gun and anti-abortion. Democrats who are pro-gun and anti-abortion. So on the social issue, sure, they're more right-leaning. But on the economic issues, they're left. They're solidly left. They're pro-union. They want overtime pay. They want to raise the minimum wage. They want higher taxes on the wealthy. Like, these are populists. So the idea that you want, like, a Wall Street Democrat is nonsense. It's a myth. And these idiots in the media run cover for that myth for the establishment of the Democratic Party. And they feed into this idea that like, oh, in red states, you need Democrats who are basically Republican. No, you don't. You don't. You need populist Democrats. So that's the problem, man. And it kind of is infuriating. Because by the way, I don't know what the number is right this second, because I only, last time I looked was like two years ago or so. But 538 does this thing where they track the voting record of, um, of Democrats. And it says, what percentage of the time they vote with Trump. And Joe Manchin would oscillate between 50% of the time and 60% of the time. So he would 50 or 60% of the time, he would be voting with Trump. They might think that that's what voters of West Virginia want. But no, the devil is in the details. And oftentimes he would vote, for example, to like deregulate Wall Street. That's not what West Virginia voters want. So it's bullshit. This idea that, like, you need those kinds of of Democrats in order to get Democratic majorities. No, you don't. And, in fact, this really highlights the divide, the real divide in the country. There's a bigger divide between the elites and the people than there's just a partisan divide of left versus right, Republican versus Democrat. That's the reality. And so you have this totally out-of-touch elite establishment in Washington, D.C., which keeps going with business as usual in the status quo. And the people, when you look at the numbers, the people are relatively in agreement with giant majorities on some of the most important issues of the day. Minimum wage, raising taxes on the wealthy, uh, raising taxes on corporations, Medicare for all, universal health care, ending the wars, an infrastructure bill. Like, the people are together, Republican and Democrat. The actual people are together, and it's the people in D.C. who usually are blocking progress. So... Of course, Joe Scarborough, not ideologically consistent. Just a few weeks ago, he was agreeing that FDR's path forward and universal health care, that's, that's the way to go. And now he's propping up one of the worst Democrats who's against universal health care. He's propping up the worst Democrat who's like for Wall Street deregulation. And, you know, I'd expect no less from Joe Scarborough. So I have an unfortunate update for everybody. This is about Trump's emoluments case. The Supreme Court on Monday ordered lower courts to dismiss two cases that allege former President Donald Trump unlawfully profited from his businesses while in office in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clauses. 
Both sides agreed the issue had become moot after Trump's term finished on January 20th, according to Bloomberg, ending a prolonged legal battle that extended for most of his presidency. A federal appeals court last February dismissed a case based on the emoluments clause from 215 congressional Democrats citing a lack of standing. The Supreme Court's move on Monday leaves open questions about emoluments for future presidents who retain business interests while in office like Trump did. Worth noting, the dismissed cases, Trump versus Crew and Trump versus District of Columbia, could potentially have carved a path to access Trump's financial records if they had gone through during his presidency. Okay, so this is a bit of a tragedy, and let me explain why. Donald Trump was an egregious violator of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. Now, I know that sounds all fancy-schmancy, but just understand, when they talk about emoluments, all that means is the president can't be corrupt. The president can't take money from foreign governments. That's all that means. That's it. That's all it means. Um, I know it's a weird word, but that's how they refer to it in the Constitution. So he did take money from foreign governments, and he did take money from wealthy foreign investors with potential ties to governments. So probably the biggest offenders, um, Saudi Arabia, of course, and Israel, of course. There's been detailed reporting on Jared Kushner taking millions of dollars from Israeli banks. Um, And of course, the Trump administration would turn around and give Israel everything they wanted. Um, In the case of Saudi Arabia, we have specifics on it. We know that the Saudi Arabian government was paying Trump through his D.C. hotel and funneling him hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars. And, you know, Trump turned around and gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal as they were in the midst of doing a genocide in Yemen. Stop and think about that scandal. Stop and think about that scandal. Taking money from Saudi Arabia through your hotel in D.C., getting wealthy in the process, getting a lot of money in the process, as you're, then you turn around and give them money and weapons, the weapons they're literally using to carry out a genocide in Yemen. That honestly, that might be the biggest scandal of the Trump administration, and it was barely covered. And nobody really connected the dots either. Like when they talked about it, they only talked about it in, in the context of Trump is taking money through his D.C. hotel from Saudi Arabia as a business deal. They said, oh, they sent U.S. soldiers there for like a getaway. This, is, this was the way that they were buying off Trump. But nobody connected the dots and said, hold on now. Trump gave him a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. Previous presidents had given Saudi Arabia weapons deals, and it's inexcusable then too. But Trump gave an even bigger weapons deal as they were carrying out a genocide in Yemen. Nobody connected those dots. Nobody did. Israel, Saudi Arabia, I think there were examples of Turkey as well when it comes to corruption. So the list goes on and on. He's a sitting U.S. president getting a lot of money from foreign investors and foreign governments. That alone is unacceptable. You know, the, the, the example from earlier in American history is that Jimmy Carter was forced to sell his peanut farm, not because he was actually corrupt, but because they said it leaves an opportunity for a foreign government to funnel him money through his peanut farm, and that could lead to corruption, so you've got to sell your peanut farm. Trump did this nonsense thing where he pretended like, oh, I'm turning over my businesses to my children. We're going to put it in a blind trust, and they're going to run it. I mean, still, that opens up a zillion legal and ethical questions. I mean, first of all, that's not even the way a blind trust works. A blind trust is something totally different, but giving it to your kids, that's not exactly like, it's not like you're no longer profiting 
off of what's happening with your businesses. Absurd, absurd. The other, I mean, again, this is a different scandal, but he was purposefully diverting like U.S. military planes and stuff and making people from the government stay at his own property so he could juice the numbers at his own businesses. All types of stuff, man. Just corruption all around. And what happened is the process took so freaking long in the courts that Trump was out of office before we got conclusions. And now everybody goes, oh, okay, well, I guess, I guess that's it because he's not president anymore, so it's moot. It doesn't matter anymore. I would definitely argue that that's not correct. Of course it matters. Of course it matters. In fact, for something this egregious, honestly, if they, if they looked at the details and found the sufficient evidence to build the case where you could actually prove some quid pro quos or whatever, and you, maybe you can do that through official government business with phone calls Trump made to foreign leaders like the Saudi leaders, then there should be freaking jail time for that because this is really the stuff that's leading to the destruction of the United States of America. It's the corruption that's viewed as nonchalant, whether it's with foreign governments, but most importantly, when it's with Wall Street, when it's with Big Pharma, when it's with the military-industrial complex, you know, like standard operating procedure is bribery, and it's corruption, and it's the politicians doing the bidding of corporations and billionaires, and in Trump's case, even foreign investors and foreign governments. So an example needs to be made of what he did. You can't let this stuff happen. Now, listen, I'm consistent on this stuff. I'm not a partisan hack, so when I look at the Clinton Foundation and how corrupt that was, I say, wow, that's corrupt. When you looked at the specifics how they were making their money and what they were doing in return when Hillary was Secretary of State, it's inexcusable. Biden, you know, listen, it's true, man. A very detailed article in Politico, this was, I think it was when Biden was VP or maybe just after, maybe came out like 2016 or something like that, 2017. Um, Biden and his family, they have a long history of profiting off of his name. So my point is, it's the whole, it's the whole culture of the D.C. elites and the establishment. And Trump just was part of that culture and put it on steroids and human growth hormone. And now the courts are running cover for them by saying, oh, what can we do? He's out of office now, so we're not even going to you know, rule on this case. You definitely should rule on it. And if it's indeed the case that you can prove what we know is the case, then he should get prison time. He should be locked up because this corruption is really destroying the country. So this is actually a huge deal, man. And this is one of those things where, like, a lot was made, rightly so, of the attempted insurrection, the diet coup, which failed miserably. Um, But, like, this is one of those scandals where people don't view it as sexy because it requires a little bit of explaining. But really, this is just as egregious as that, that we had a a U.S. president who's in there to more so represent Wall Street and the military-industrial complex and the Saudi Arabian government and the Israeli government and wealthy individuals – That's the problem. That's like the issue in our government. And now we don't even get an answer and the courts punted on it. And honestly, it's stupid and it's disgusting and it's grotesque. So in terms of justice in regards to Trump, now, honestly, what you're doing is you're just hoping that the attorney general in New York can get him on business crimes because they're investigating. And I'm sure they're finding a lot of stuff because, listen, he's been a corrupt businessman his whole life. You can't be a builder in New York City in the 1980s and not have mob connections. Okay, there's a, we've seen the detailed reporting on his taxes to this point, and we know that there was insurance fraud and tax fraud and writing stuff off, giving the money to Ivanka as he's writing it off on his taxes as if it's going to a consultant. 
There's all types of bullshit. Overvaluing assets when he, when he wants to sell it, undervaluing it for taxes, all sorts of shit. So they might actually get him on some business crimes. Um, but unfortunately, they're not going to get him on probably his worst crimes of all, which is the rank corruption while he was in office. Okay. Now we're going to talk about what our beefy president is doing now. What is our beefy president doing now? What is our beefy president doing now? So what is former president, ex-president Donald Trump, what's he up to these days? Well, take a look. Former President Trump on Monday established an official post-presidency office in Palm Beach County, Florida, setting up a vehicle for future public appearances and statements. The office of the former president will manage Trump's correspondence, public statements, appearance, and official activities, according to a press release from the office. President Trump will always and forever be a champion for the American people, the press release said. The title of the office could fuel speculation that Trump may not run for president again in 2024, something he and his advisors have not definitively weighed in on. Trump has been publicly silent since leaving the White House last week for his Mar-a-Lago estate in Palm Beach. He has been banned from Twitter and suspended from other major social media platforms in the wake of the Capitol riot on January 6th. So, um, what's going on here? Well, my interpretation of it is actually the exact opposite of what they're speculating in the article. Their speculation is, oh, if he's creating this office, he's obviously not going to run for president again. Wrong. He's creating this office because he wants to stay relevant so that he can set up a run again in 2024. Now, the original reporting was that as soon as he lost and he sort of understood that he lost, even though he was lying publicly, he was like, I'm going to run in 2024 anyway, and I'll get my revenge. Then, um, when the diet coup attempt failed miserably and he was, you know, embarrassed, he sort of was convinced by his staff, eh, maybe it's not a good idea to run in 2024. Well, now, I think the more time you let him be, the more time he's going to have to dwell on the fact he wants to be in the spotlight, he wants to get his revenge, and so I think he's probably leaning in the direction of running in 2024 yet again. Now, this opens up a larger conversation. If they do impeachment, apparently he might not be able to run in 2024. If they use the 14th Amendment with a simple majority in Congress, they could make a law basically saying he can't run because he provided aid and comfort to people trying to do an insurrection. So, I mean, they probably, like, Congress probably should act on this and should use the 14th Amendment just to, like, close the door on it, but they haven't yet, and so I think he's sitting around going, yeah, I'm going to get my revenge and I'm going to plot it. And step number one is, how do I stay relevant? Well, I can't just tweet stuff because I'm banned from Twitter now. I can't post on various social media platforms because I'm banned from most of them. So it looks like thing number one is I'll set up the office of the former president, and so now when he wants to say something publicly, it looks all official. The office of the former president has declared, you know, you make it look a little f- fancy letterhead or whatever. You send it out to whoever you want to, like, use as your megaphone, whatever media outlet you want to use as your megaphone. And so that's what I think he's doing. I also think that he doesn't have it in him to relax and step out of the spotlight. I don't think he has that in him. I think he's a malignant narcissist who thrives off of more eyeballs on him. So he's doing as much as he possibly can to maintain that public persona 
and that image and that profile. And um, it's interesting because I'm going to get to a different segment where we talk about how some other establishment Republicans are thinking about this. But, man, Trumpism is not going away. You're going to have this Republican civil war, this Republican Party civil war. The voters are split, and they're split almost exactly down the middle in terms of how many want to move on beyond Trump and how many are just like, no, that's my guy, and I'm not changing that. So, um, yeah, I I think the speculation here is exactly wrong. I think the reason he created this is to stay relevant so that he maybe can run again in 2024. He wants to leave that door open. So here we are, man. I know it, it felt a little bit like, oh, maybe we are just like moving past the Trump era because he's not there every day to scream in our face on Twitter and uh, now he's out of office. But a guy like this does not go quietly into the night. That's for damn sure. And the thing you should be rooting for is this, and I've seen some articles to this extent too. Thing number one is he wants to primary the Republicans who he thinks stabbed him in the back the most. So he's probably looking around recruiting people to be the Trumpist Republican, the Patriot Party Republican, to run it to primary Republicans who he thinks were not sufficiently loyal to him. So that's thing number one. Um, And yeah, the Patriot Party is probably on the front of his mind as well. You almost should be wishing for the establishment Republicans to stab him in the back a little more. And then if that happens, he's launching the nukes metaphorically. And yeah, you're going to have Trump create a Patriot Party, which will probably take 15% of the vote from the Republicans which will guarantee Democratic majorities as far as the eye can see. So you should even be, in a sense, you should be rooting for him to stay in politics, to throw a wrench in the standard right-wing project, because that civil war is going to be even more aggressive than the one you see on the Democratic side, where it's the left versus the establishment type. So anyway, he ain't going away, man. He ain't going away. And this is step number one, where he's like, hey, don't forget about me. I'm still here. Okay, let's move on. So this clip from the Fox Business Network is great because it shows you how shameless conservative media is and how they flip on a dime. So what they're going to do here is feign outrage over dark money accepted by Biden. Let's watch and then we'll talk about it. Candidate Biden, he benefited heavily from the dark money donations. Jackie DeAngelis is with us. How much money did the president receive from these anonymous sources, Jackie? Good morning, Stu. Get a load of this. It was a record-breaking $145 million. And you want to compare that to President Trump? He only got $28.4 million. It was about 17% of what Biden got, according to the Center for Responsive Politics. Now, what exactly is dark money? In politics, it refers to funds spent by political nonprofits or super PACs. Super PACs are independent, expenditure-only, political committees. They can take in unlimited contributions from individuals, corporations, unions, and other groups without any legal limit on the donation size. And then 
too, once it's all lumped together and going to a candidate, you really don't know where it came from. The irony here is that the Democrats have denounced dark money for years, including in 2018 when Biden himself told PBS News, quote, people can't possibly trust a politician with a super PAC. There is a rot in our American democracy, and there is a shadow over the halls of Congress. The rot is dark money, and the shadow is special interest influence empowered by that dark money. Now, that was Democrat Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, but House Dems have been very vocal on this issue as well, even hoping to revive a resolution to reform the campaign's finance laws to bring dark money out into the light. But it's interesting because it raises this question. With Biden taking advantage of dark money, how can the Democrats then go and bash its existence? One source I was spoken to said, think of it this way. It's like if the uber-wealthy used tax law to their advantage, then they said they wanted to dismantle the very laws that had helped them do. It's got people scratching their heads. <laughs> it sure has. Good stuff, Jackie. Thanks for joining us. Dark money indeed. All right. <laughs> yes. Dark money indeed, good sir. So dark. Oh, boy. Okay, so listen. Hypocrisy burning is the easiest thing in the world. What I care about is, what is your position on this, Stuart Varney? What do you think about dark money? Because here's the reality. Fox News has never, ever, that I've seen, come out against money in politics in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They argue money in politics is freedom of speech, and you should have unlimited money in politics. Ted Cruz made this argument. I mean, I remember covering this. It was you know, a few years back, but he basically says, you're in favor of restricting the First Amendment if you want to limit the amount of money billionaires can donate to Ted Cruz or to a super PAC linked to Ted Cruz. He made that argument. It's unconstitutional. It's against the First Amendment to do that. Stuart Varney agrees with Ted Cruz on that. Uh, in the Citizens United case, he was on the side of Citizens United. In the McCutcheon case, he was on the side of McCutcheon. I mean, you go back to case law in the U.S., it's the late 1970s when the Supreme Court started ruling in a variety of cases that actually money equals free speech. So you have a right to donate however much money you want to donate. These guys cheered that on every step of the way. They agree with that. They're pro-legalized bribery. They're pro-corruption. But aha, now that they can burn Biden over it, they're like, oh, dark money, a blight on our democracy, good sir. This is unacceptable. Should we allow this? No, I think we're against this, and we should talk about how bad and corrupt Biden is. Now, by the way, yes, exactly. I've been saying that. Other lefties have been saying that. The cancer in our political system is the money in the political system. So everything you're saying about Biden there, oh, my God, this is so bad. That's all true. It's all true. But you know what else is true? The $28 million that Trump took in dark money donations, that's just as bad. Well, it's not as bad because mathematically it's less. But the principle of it is just as bad, and he's taking $28 million. By the way, dark money is not the only kind of money. There are other ways that you, know, you donate. You can donate to a campaign. You could donate to a PAC. You could donate to a super PAC. There's a, a variety of ways that you give money, and there are different rules for each, but the rules are very, very, very lax. And Fox News has always been in favor of as few rules as possible. As few rules as possible, let billionaires and corporations make it rain on politicians, and then, of course, what's the logical consequence of that? Those politicians do the bidding of those special interests. Wall Street, military-industrial complex, 
big pharma, for-profit health insurance companies. And again, Fox News, they love this system, and then now it's only a problem because of Biden. You know damn well if Trump won, just like in 2016, they have no problem with that. Trump can take however much dark money he wants. Trump can accept money from a super PAC, a regular PAC, his own campaign, from Sheldon Adelson, from Foster Freeze, from the Koch brothers. All of that shit, they support when it's Republicans. They're only against it when it's Democrats. So anyway, the point here is the partisan hackery is just overwhelming and immense. And you should not take these guys seriously by any stretch of the imagination because they will flip on a dime. They haven't thought through. They don't actually have positions on shit. All they have is, I will always go after Democrats for everything, and I will always defend Republicans for everything. So even on something like legalized bribery and corruption, they shut their brain off when it's Republicans. Or if anything, they argue that it's okay because Republicans are doing it. But when it's Democrats, oh my God, let's do a segment talking about how terrible dark money is. I'll make that deal with you right now, dog. You want to make a deal right now? None of the politicians can take dark money. None of the politicians can take corporate money. You want to shake on that? Oh, you don't. You only wanted a hypocrisy burn Joe Biden. By the way, there is a no corporate PAC um, caucus in Congress. If I'm not mistaken, 98% of them, maybe there's like two or three Republicans who are part of that caucus. The overwhelming majority of people who are part of the no corporate PAC caucus are Democrats. So, okay, you're covering Biden. Fair. He's, he took more dark money. Fair. Go after him for that. Why don't you add the fact about the no corporate PAC money caucus, where 98% of the time, it's the Democrats who aren't taking corporate PAC money. Oh, that's right, because it makes your beloved Republicans look terrible. So you're not going to cover it. That's where we're at with these people. Not an honest bone in his body. Total partisan hack believes in nothing. Okay. All right, let's... Let's uh, go to one more clip from Fox News here. You're about to enter the twilight zone yet again. This next clip is from Fox Business Network, and it's also from the twilight zone. So they're going to admit that income inequality is way out of whack, which is amazing. Never thought I'd see the day that Fox Business is like, you know, you got a point with that income inequality thing. But the other thing they do is they start openly discussing, like, hey, maybe the Fed will do some sort of universal basic income program. Maybe they'll start, instead of doing what they always do for Wall Street and the financial institutions, maybe they'll, they'll do that for regular people who kind of need it. Watch this. Well, doesn't it seem like capitalism often provides the best ammunition for progressives in their case to reshape it? After publicly decrying income inequality, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon's 2020 pay, it held steady, $31.5 million. I'm going to bring in BMO Capital Markets Chief Strategist Brian Belsky. Brian, we're going to talk markets later, but I've got to talk to you about this. Now, J.P. Morgan is stocked well. The company held up pretty well. Uh, but my goodness, I mean, are, are they sort of blind to the winds that are swirling around? Because I know Jamie Dimon always says the right thing, but when he takes that kind of money... He gives a lot of ammunition to ALC and company. 
He really does. Thanks for having me. And you're gonna throw me out after uh, mentioning that some guy made thirty-two million dollars for <laughs> us on Wall Street. We've seen pay go down for ten straight years. I know. Get the violin out, right? But listen, uh, you know what? I think people fail to remember that that political contributions are basically even on both sides. They gotta they gotta they gotta do an investment tactic called a straddle. Uh, and even though uh, you hear a lot of press about the, this money being pulled on one side, let's give it a couple of years, Charles, and we'll see what happens uh, in, in 2022. But I think some of this is just one of these symptoms of let's kick a dog while they're down, and I think it'll slowly go away. But I, you're, you're absolutely spot on. This is only giving additional ammo to that side that, in terms of, uh, of, of income distribution and all of that stuff. Right. Right, income inequality. But i got to tell you, I'm not as sanguine as you are. In fact, I think there are plans right now to hijack the Federal Reserve. And, and, and here's the thing. They say, they're going to say, why don't we point this money-making, this money-printing machine that's always printed at Wall Street and turn it to the half-nuts? Uh, even the Fed, uh, if you listen to the Fed real close, they admit that they, they exacerbate the income inequality thing, right, that they make the wealthiest people out there wealthier, which is fine. I mean, everyone can invest in the stock market, but... I mean, when I listen to, 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 to the folks who are in the Fed, who are coming into the Federal Reserve, Biden, Yellen, I believe that they might actually do something like that in terms of, hey, let's just print money and give it to Main Street. Well, a couple things to watch as leading indicators, as we like to call in the business. I mean, remember, uh, I don't think enough has been made in terms of Yellen's not only chairmanship of, of the Fed for a few years, but she was on the Fed Board of Governors for a long, long time. So her tentacles run deep in the Fed. But I think also, too, Charles, we haven't seen a lot of dissension for several years from voting members of the Fed. Start watching for more of that. I mean, if that's, that's going to start, then, then we could actually see maybe the semblance of what you're indeed talking about. Yeah, if, if Bostic, watch Bostic because he's, he's, he's more of a hawk, but he believes that the, that the Fed has hurt uh, the lower rungs of the of the society. If he changes his stance, I agree with you, Brian. We could be on our way. Sorry, we didn't get a chance to get to the market stuff. You've been right. The market's been up. We'll talk to you again real soon. <laughs> that was amazing. So they're talking about how the Fed might turn around and uh, do some sort of UBI program for the American people. I mean, if I was a betting man, I'd say I don't think so, but. It's interesting that even the people on Fox Business who are extremists um, are at the point where they're thinking, well, obviously people need help and they're incredibly desperate, and this would be some sort of solution, because you know what? That is the exact solution that's always been used for the financial institutions in Wall Street. They just get money thrown at them nonstop whenever, you know, they hit a, hit a bad spot, you know? So... I think, it, you know, you probably would have to do a program like that through Congress. You'd have to have it approved through Congress. I don't think the Federal Reserve can really take it into their own hands to do a program like that. But it's fascinating to me that they're casually talking about it. Now, the other thing is, on income equality, their point is income equality is obviously – making us look bad, making capitalists look bad, because clearly it shows that AOC is right and her concern is reasonable. That like, you know, Jamie Dimon making whatever it was, $32 million or something in one year. And it's like, 
yeah, you're not helping, dude. $32 million in one year? Like, yeah, income inequality is a problem, and you're a great example of how it's a problem. Um, look at the fact that 60% of the businesses that shut as a result of COVID are now shut permanently. About 30% can't pay their housing bill. Thankfully, we have temporary moratoriums on that, but when that runs out, what the hell is going to happen? You know, I remember we covered a story last year there was a study that came from the Rand Corporation. They said that the top 1% has stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90% since 1974. In other words, if you took the income distribution in the post-World War II climate in that multi-decade time frame, and you had the same income distribution moving forward, the bottom 90% would be $47 trillion wealthier. So people have gotten absolutely obliterated and screwed by this system. It's the lack of unionization now. It's the fact that money controls our politicians, and so they're making decisions that are rigged in favor of the top 1% in the corporations. These are the things that have perverted the decision-making process, which then in turn biases the system against regular people. And it's now so extreme that we're at the point where Fox business hosts are like, you know, the left has been bitching about uh, wealth and income inequality, and I have to say they kind of have a point when you look at the numbers. Exactly. Exactly. And funny enough, what they're saying would be a solution. Now, again, you could debate whether or not the Fed can do it or if it has to go through Congress, but according to that same Rand Corporation study, if you had the same income distribution as you did in the post-World War II phase, the golden age of economic expansion, as it's called, Every single person in the bottom 90% in this country would have made an extra, I believe the exact number was $1,144 per month, every month in their lives. So yeah, funny enough, a universal basic income program would be the way to sort of redress this problem, redress this grievance, to fix it. And so they stumble on that, um, but you know, I doubt they're actually for it, but just the fact that they're talking about it really is something to see. The, what is possible is, is changing right in front of our eyes. We really are entering a new phase in American history. We went from FDR's New Deal era to the Reaganomics, you know, drown the government in the bathtub era, and now because of the pandemic, because of the subsequent depression, you can also argue because of the recession from 2009, people have had enough and they're fed up, and you can see the landscape shifting in front of us where now... Things are in the conversation that never previously would have been in the conversation. And that's a good thing because these are absolutely necessary, vital solutions to our problems. Okay. Ooh, let me change. How many times am I going to fuck up the lights behind me? Former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake was interviewed on CNN, and the topic here is Trumpism and the looming Republican Civil War. What direction will the Republicans go in? And obviously Jeff Flake, him and Trump have had it out for each other for a long time now, so he's like an anti-Trump Republican. Um, so let's see what he thinks of this moment. This is interesting. I have a lot to say about it. Watch. 
there is no future uh, with Trumpism. It, it just, uh, there's no coherent governing philosophy. It's, it, it's more of an attitude than a, than a philosophy. Mm. And, uh, and, it, it, and just look, since President Trump was elected, uh, we lost the House, we've lost the Senate, we lost the White House, and in the midterms, we lost more than 400 legislative seats nationwide. I don't know how much more winning we can stand as a Republican Party, so we've got to go a different direction. Even though in the face of that, Senator Flake, there has been a noticeable shift just in the last couple of weeks that some of the Republicans who initially criticized the president, Kevin McCarthy, for instance, saying that the president bore responsibility for the violent insurrection of the Capitol. Now he says, well, everyone does. Uh, you have uh, a senator like Marco Rubio, who criticized the president's comments, now saying that uh, a Senate trial uh, would be, I think, stupid is, is the word he used there. And it's not like Rep Representative Kinzinger has, you know, lots of folks in public supporting him. And I wonder if that shift is worrisome to you, that, that the Trump wing of the party is winning out here, or maybe. I don't think it will at the end, but it is concerning, uh, short term. Uh, obviously, uh, my former colleagues are uh, wondering where the base of the party is going to land. And then there's concern that they might stick with the president. And a good number of them still believe that the, the election uh, was rigged. Now, I can tell you, there's not one of my former colleagues who truly believes that there was wide-scale voter fraud on a level that would uh, overturn the election. Uh, yet many took that position because that's a position the president took and thereby, you know, his base. And so there's still concern. And, yes, that is a big concern moving forward for the party. But I think, you know, when a president loses the trappings of office and the levers of power, and with Trumpism, that requires a kind of a swagger that comes with winning that didn't happen. And so I think the president is going to fade a lot faster than some believe, and that will be good for the party. So the, it's notable that the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal this morning wrote this, quote, sensible parties that lose elections try to reunite in opposition even while they debate policy differences and examine why they lost. They don't excommunicate people who could help rebuild a majority. This was directly in response to the censure of you guys over the weekend. Reading that, I just wonder what your, your message to, for example, Mitch McConnell would be right now. Well, you, we are always better when we play addition rather than subtraction. I don't know how in the world you win elections moving ahead if you're, you're trying to push people out for, as it said in my censure resolution, uh, for rejecting populism. <laughs> I thought that that's what political parties do. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, the leadership uh, in the Senate certainly knows where we need to go. Um, and I, I hope that as we get closer to the midterm elections, it's clear uh, that you've got to distance yourself from the former administration, uh, not try to ingratiate yourself to the president. Um, he's going to fade pretty fast. There's a lot to say about this. Some of the stuff he's right about, some of the stuff he's wrong about. So he says, he keeps saying there's no future for Trumpism and Trump is going to fade. On that point, he's wrong. He's wrong because he's, it's at least half of the Republican base that's not, that trust Trump more than other Republicans. And they're more with Trump, even after everything that's happened. So you can't say, like, fuck off to half my base and expect there to be no consequences. Of course there are going to be consequences. Go ask Hillary Clinton how it works when you say, 
fuck off to half your base. Doesn't go too well, does it? So on that, he's just wrong. This idea, oh, he's going to fade. Trump is not a guy who goes away silently, even with being, you know, kicked off by a lot of the social media platforms. He just opened up office of the former president so he could still get his message out to people, even while not being on social media. So I think that's optimistic to say, oh, Trump is going to fade. Not unless they use the 14th Amendment in Congress and they ban Trump from ever holding office again. Will he in particular, you know, fade? So, and his people, you have to deal with his people. You can't just like hand wave it away. The next thing he says is Trump, Trumpism at this point is more of an attitude than a philosophy. That is true. Trumpism started out with a bunch of fake populism mixed in, uh, where he would talk about how we're not going to cut Social Security and we're going to stop outsourcing the jobs and I'm big on Buy American and stuff like that. And then in terms of policy, he was a standard elitist Republican. So it did become more about an attitude and a no-filter approach to politics and a swagger. And it became more of like more about the culture war stuff than about the economic class war stuff. So on that point, he's right. And that's one of the reasons why Trumpism became such a failure in the last election is that what did it actually stand for, except for being an asshole on Twitter and continuing George W. Bush's policies? Um, He says Trump lost the House, the Senate, and the White House, and state legislative seats, so he's a loser now. That's correct. And that's why the conventional wisdom now shifted against Trump when there was a time when everybody thought he was Teflon. Then he said, this part's interesting. He says, nobody actually believes it's rigged among the elected Republicans in D.C. He said, none of my former colleagues believe it's rigged. None of them. Right, because they're smart enough to know it's not rigged and that it's all stupid conspiracy theories that aren't even mildly convincing from One American News Networks and and One American News Network and Newsmax and QAnon and all these just silly and dumb and provably incorrect theories. They're all smart enough to know that it's bullshit. They all know that. Um, And then finally, talking about, they're talking about how he was censured by the Republican Party of Arizona. They censured him and Cindy McCain and some other people who are like anti-Trump Republicans. And there was an op-ed where somebody said, oh, you don't censure people who can help rebuild the party. And my response to that is, Jeff Flake is not the future of the party. Jeff Flake is the past of the party. Jeff Flake is the establishment elitist Republicans. He's one of the establishment elitist Republicans. And... He also doesn't have the new rhetorical flair and edge and swagger of Trumpism. So he's not there on the culture war stuff for them. And he's still a dinosaur on the economic stuff in terms of how he governs and how he talks about the issues. So he's not the future of the party. He's the past of the party. And then he, he shows you why he's not the future of the party, because what does he say there? Oh, um, I was censured for rejecting populism. I thought that's what political parties were supposed to do. Hey, idiot, you're not supposed to brag about being against the will of the people. You're not supposed to brag about being anti-populism. You're supposed to at least put the veneer on of, oh, yeah, I'm fighting for the working man and woman and the regular person, and I agree with them. I'm a populist. I'm with what people in the, what the majority of the population wants, I'm in favor of. But he doesn't do that. He wears his elitism proudly. So that's why he's not the future of the party. Too, like, polished and perfect a politician. And that's just not attractive to anybody outside of Washington, D.C. Like, yeah, corporate media is going to love this guy. That's it. Only corporate media. Um, So the Republicans are screwed, man. They really are. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Because Trump 
had the, the rhetorical flair and the fake populist edge, but ultimately he didn't do anything populist, so he was just an elitist Republican who's a dick on Twitter, ultimately. But the, Repu- the establishment Republicans are just stodgy, old, boring dudes who are not edgy, are not interesting, have no rhetorical flair, have no swagger, and they're openly disdainful of working people. You know, and they say, like, no, elitism is better than populism. So there is no winning. There is no winning. Either you, the, cult, the crazy culture warriors win out, which is what Trumpism is now. So the, either the lunatics run the asylum, or, you know, you have the totally out-of-touch Thurston Howell III types that take over the Republican Party again and, and have it fully moving forward. So they can't win either way, which is a glorious thing, and I'm going to enjoy watching it. All right, guys, we are done, baby. Crystal Kyle and friends this week, do not want to miss it. We're talking to the wonderful Justin Jackson. Um, Have a good one, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.